Hello and welcome back to Byzantium and the Crusades. My name is Nick Holmes and this is episode 14 of the Second Age of the Crusaders and the title is The Beginning of the End. We've reached a turning point in the history of the later Crusades, which is the Battle of La Forbie in 1244. As you will hear, this peculiar battle in which the Crusaders allied with the Sultan of Damascus against Ayub, the Sultan of Egypt, resulted in a defeat from which the Crusader states never really recovered. Although the Seventh Crusade tried to save the Crusaders and the Arabs continued to some extent to prefer not to annihilate the Crusader states for fear of retaliation from the West, the scene was now set for the gradual demise and ultimate complete elimination of the Crusaders by 1291. Two developments would take centre stage during the last 50 years of Crusader history, and these were the arrival of the Mongols in the Middle East and the rise to power of a powerful new dynasty in Egypt called the Mamluks. With the Mongols, this was the famous empire created by Genghis Khan, which ultimately stretched from China to Europe and was one of the largest empires in the whole of history. As far as the Crusaders were concerned, the Mongols offered a ray of hope because they might convert to Christianity. And they certainly did cause a great deal of disruption to the Muslim world when they invaded the Middle East. On the other hand, the other new force in the Middle East, the Mamluks, would become the nemesis of the Crusaders. The Mamluks were slave soldiers who came to dominate the Egyptian army, and their sultan Baibars would defeat both the Seventh Crusade as well as the Mongols, and thereby ensure the ultimate defeat of the Crusaders. So, without further ado, let's hear more about the later years of the Crusaders. As before, I'll read extracts from my adapted version of Sir Stephen Runciman's wonderful History of the Crusades. Hope you enjoy it. Facing the Allied army of Crusaders and Muslims from Damascus stood the Egyptian army under the command of a young Mamluk emir, Rukin Adin Baibars. It consisted of 5,000 picked Egyptian soldiers and the horde of Khwarizmian Turks. The opposing armies made contact on the 17th of October at the village of Herbia, or in French, La Forbie, on the sandy plain a few miles northeast of Gaza. The Allies hastily held a council of war. Al-Munsa Ibrahim recommended that they should stay where they were, fortifying their camp against any Khwarizmian attack. He calculated that the Khwarizmians would soon grow impatient. They disliked attacking a strong position, and the Egyptian army could not attack without them. With good luck, the whole Egyptian army might soon retire to Egypt. Many of the Christians agreed with him, but Walter of Jaffa eagerly urged an immediate attack. Their forces were superior in number. It was a glorious opportunity for destroying the Khwarizmian menace and humiliating the Sultan of Egypt, Ayub. He had his way and the whole army moved out to the attack. 
The Crusaders were on the right flank, then came the Damascus Muslim forces and the men of Homs in the centre, and An-Nazir and his Bedouin on the left. While the Egyptian troops held the Crusader attack, the Khwarizmians charged down upon the Crusaders' Muslim allies. Al-Mansur Ibrahim and his men from Homs stood their ground, but the Damascene troops could not withstand the shock. They turned and fled, and with them An-Nazir and his army. While Al-Mansur Ibrahim fought his way out, the Khwarizmians turned and swooped onto the flank of the Crusaders, driving them against the Egyptian regiments. The Crusaders fought bravely, but in vain, within a few hours, their whole army was destroyed. Among the dead was the Grand Master of the Temple and its Marshal, the Archbishop of Tyre, the Bishop of Ramla, and two young lords of Butron. The Count of Jaffa, the Grand Master of the Hospital and the Constable of Tripoli were taken prisoner. Philip of Montfort escaped with the Patriarch back to Ascalon, where they were joined by the survivors of the military orders, only 33 Templars and 26 Hospitallers and three Teutonic Knights. They went on by sea to Jaffa. The number of the dead was estimated at being not less than 5,000 and probably more. 800 prisoners were taken back to Egypt. The victorious Egyptian army marched at once on Ascalon, which was now garrisoned by the military order of the hospital. Its fortifications proved their value. The Egyptians' assaults failed and they settled down to blockade it, bringing up ships from Egypt to watch the coast. Meanwhile, the Khwarizmians hurried to Jaffa, with its captive count, whom they threatened to hang unless the garrison surrendered. But he shouted to his men to hold firm. The fortifications were too formidable for the Khwarizmians. They retired with their prisoner, whose life they spared. He died later in captivity, after a brawl with an Egyptian emir with whom he was playing chess. The disaster at La Fourbie robbed the Crusaders of all the precarious gains that diplomacy had won for them during the last decades. The loss of manpower left Outremer quite unable to defend more than the coastal districts and a few of the strongest inland castles. Only at Hattin had the losses been greater. There was, however, a difference between the battles of Hattin and La Fourbie. The victor of the earlier battle, Saladin, was already master of all Syria and Egypt. However, However, Ayub of Egypt still had to overcome his rival at Damascus before he could venture to finish off the Christians. This delay saved Outremer. The Khwarizmian Turks had hoped that as a reward for their help, Ayub would settle them in rich lands in Egypt, but he refused to allow them across the frontier and posted troops there to see that they remained in Syria. They turned back to raid Palestine as far as the suburbs of Acre, then moved inland to join the Euphrates at the siege of Damascus. The Egyptian army under the Emir Muin Adin marched up through central Palestine, depriving An-Nazir of Karak of all of his lands west of the Jordan, and eventually arrived before Damascus in April 1245. The siege lasted for six months. Ismail of Damascus cut out the dikes that held in the river Barada, and the land outside the walls was an impenetrable marsh. But the tight blockade organised by the Egyptians soon caused unrest amongst the merchants and the shopkeepers. Early in October, Ismail came to terms. 
He yielded up Damascus in return for a vassal principality consisting of Baalbek and the Haran. But the Khwarizmians were still left unrewarded. They therefore decided to abandon Ayub's cause and early in 1246 offered their services to his enemy Ishmael. With their help, he returned towards Damascus and laid siege to the city. He'd hoped that other Ayubite princes would join him against Ayub, but they disliked the Khwarizmians more. The regent of Aleppo and the Prince of Homs, subsidised by Ayub, sent an army to the relief of Damascus. Ishmael and his allies raised the siege and came northward and met the relieving force early in May, somewhere on the road between Baalbek and Homs. He was severely defeated and the Khwarizmian Turks were almost annihilated. Those that survived found their way to the east to join up with the Mongols, while the head of their leader was carried in triumph through the streets of Aleppo. The whole Arab world rejoiced at their disappearance. Ayub's possession of Damascus was complete. Ishmael was restricted once more back to Baalbek and the Ayubites of the north recognised Ayub's seniority. He could now give his attention again to the Crusaders. On the 17th of June 1247, an Egyptian army captured Tiberius and its castle, which Odo of Montbeliard had recently built. Mount Tabor and the castle of Beaver were occupied soon afterwards. The Egyptian army moved next to the siege of Ascalon. The fortifications which Hugh of Burgundy had constructed were in good condition and there was a strong garrison of hospitallers. Further help was summoned from Acre and from Cyprus. King Henry of Cyprus at once sent a squadron of eight galleys with a hundred knights under his general Baldwin of Ibelin to Acre where the commune with the aid of the Italian colonists had fitted out seven more galleys and fifty lighter vessels. The Egyptians had brought up a fleet of 21 galleys which was blockading the town and which now sailed out to meet the Christians. But before contact was made, it ran into a sudden Mediterranean storm. Many of the ships were driven ashore and wrecked and the survivors sailed back to Egypt. The Christian fleet was able to sail on unmolested to Ascalon and resupply the garrison and land the knights. But the bad weather continued and the ships could not remain in the unprotected anchorage off the town. Therefore, they returned to Acre and left Ascalon to its fate. The besieging army had been handicapped by a lack of wood for siege engines, but the wreckage of their ships scattered along the shore provided them with all the material that they needed. A great battering ram forced a passageway under the walls right into the citadel, and on the 15th of October, the Egyptian army poured through. The defenders were taken by surprise. Most of them were killed outright and the remainder taken prisoner. By the Sultan's orders, the fortress was dismantled and left desolate. Ayub, however, did not follow up his victory. He paid a visit to Jerusalem, whose walls he ordered to be reconstructed, and then passed on to hold court in Damascus. He was in residence there over the winter of 1248 and the spring of 1249, and all the Muslim princes of Syria came to do him homage. Meanwhile, in the diminished kingdom of Outremer, despite its losses and its lack of a central authority, there was internal tranquillity. Queen Alice died in 1246 and the regency passed to the next heir, her son, King Henry of Cyprus, after a protest from her half-sister, the dowager Princess Melisande of Antioch. King Henry, whose chief distinction was his obesity, was not the man to assert his powers. 
He appointed Balian of Ibelin as his warden and confirmed Philip of Montfort in the possession of Tyre. When Balian died in September 1247, he was succeeded as warden by his brother, John of Arsouf, and as Lord of Beirut by his son, another John. Further north, Beaumont V of Antioch and Tripoli tried to keep himself apart as far as possible from the concerns of his neighbours. The influence of his Italian wife, Lucienne of Seigny, kept him on good terms with the papacy, but the number of her Roman relatives and friends whom she invited to the east irritated his barons and was to cause him trouble later. It was probably at the Pope's request that he sent a contingent to the disastrous Battle of La Forbie. But at the same time, he kept up friendly relations with the German Emperor Frederick II and gave Lothar Filangeri and Thomas of Acera asylum at Tripoli to the Pope's annoyance, though he refused them active aid. His quarrel with the Armenian kingdom lasted for some years. He vainly attempted to persuade the Pope to arrange a divorce between the young Armenian heiress Isabella and the new king Hetum in order to deprive Hetum of his right to the throne. But both he and Henry of Cyprus were specifically forbidden by Rome to attack the Armenians, while Hetum, for his part, was too busily engaged in warding off the attacks of the great Seljuk Sultan Kakusro to be aggressive. The marriage of Hetum's sister Stephanie to Henry of Cyprus in 1237 gradually paved the way for a general reconciliation. Bohemond had little control over the military orders settled in his dominions, but they had grown more cautious in an attempt to reconcile the commune of Antioch with its strong Greek element. The papacy, it seems with Bohemond's approval, changed its policy towards the Orthodox church there. It was clearly impossible now to integrate the Greeks and Latins into one church, so Honorius III offered the Greeks an autonomous church with its own hierarchy and ritual, so long as the Greek patriarch would recognise the supreme authority of Rome. Meanwhile, as the Crusaders argued over ecclesiastical matters and the Muslims quarrelled over dynastic issues, there arose a new power in Asia that would change the course of both Crusader and Arab history. This was the Empire of the Mongols. The story of the Mongol Empire began in the year 1167, 20 years before Saladin reconquered Jerusalem for Islam, when a boy was born on the banks of the river Onon in northeastern Asia to a Mongol chieftain named Yesugai and his wife Holun. The child was called Tamajin, but he is better known in history by his later name of Genghis Khan. The Mongols were a group of tribes living on the upper Amur River and perpetually at war with their eastern neighbours, the Tatars. Yesugai's grandfather, Kabul Khan, had welded them together into a loose confederacy, but after his death his kingdom had disintegrated, and the Qin emperor of northern China had established his rule over the whole district. Yesugai inherited only a small portion of the old confederacy, but he increased his power and his reputation by defeating and conquering some of the Tatar tribes, and by interfering in the affairs of the most civilised of his immediate neighbours, the Khan of the Karaites. The Karaites, who were a semi-nomadic people of Turkish origin, inhabited the country around the Orkon River in modern Outer Mongolia. Early in the 11th century, their ruler had been converted to Nestorian Christianity, together with most of his subjects, and the conversion brought the Karaites into touch with the Ugar Turks, amongst whom were many Nestorians. 
The Ugars had developed a settled culture in their home in the Tarim Valley and the Turfan Depression and had evolved an alphabet for the Turkish language based on Syriac letters. In earlier times, Manichaeism had been their dominant religion. Now the Manichaeans tended, under Chinese influence, to become Buddhist. The power of the Ugar was waning, but their civilization had spread over the Kurates and over the Neyman Turks, whose country lay in between. About the year 1170, the Kurate Khan Kakuz, son of Megus Khan, died and his son Togrul had some difficulty in securing the inheritance against the opposition of his brothers and uncles. In the course of his fratricidal wars, he secured the help of Yesugai, who became his sworn brother. This friendship gave Yesugai a superior position among the Mongol chieftains, but before he could establish himself as the chief Mongol Khan, he died, poisoned by some Tatar nomads, whose evening meal he was sharing. His eldest son, Temujin, was then nine years old. The energy of Yesugai's widow, Holun, preserved for the young chieftain some authority over his father's tribes, but Temujin's childhood was stormy. He showed himself to be a leader while still a boy, and he was ruthless towards his rivals, even among his own family. In the course of the wars by which he won authority over the Mongols, he was for a while a captive in the hands of the Tayuchut tribe, and his his wife Borka, whom he married when he was 17, was held prisoner for some months by the Merkit Turks of Lake Baikal. The legitimacy of her eldest son, Juji, who was born during the captivity, was therefore always suspect. Temujin's growing successes were largely due to his alliance with the Karite Khan Togrul, whom he affected to regard as a father and who helped him in his wars against the Merkits. About the year 1194, Temujin was elected king of or Khan of all the Mongols, and took the name of Genghis the Strong. Soon afterwards, the Qin Emperor recognised Genghis as chief prince of the Mongols and secured his alliance against the Tatars, who had been threatening China. A swift war resulted in the subjection of the Tatars to Genghis's rule. When Togrul Khan was driven from the Karait throne in 1197, it was Genghis who restored him. In 1199, Genghis combined forces with Togrul Khan to defeat the Naiman Turks, but it was not long before he grew jealous of the power of the Kurates. Togrul was now the chief potentate in the eastern steppes. He had the title of Wang Khan or Ong Khan, which filtered through to Western Asia in the more familiar form of Johannes, thus making him a candidate for the role of the legendary Prester John, who was entirely fictitious, but whose imaginary existence exerted a mesmerising fascination for medieval Europeans. But Togrul was a bloodthirsty and treacherous man, singularly lacking in Christian virtues, nor was he ever able to bring help to his fellow Christians. In 1203, he quarrelled with Genghis. Their first battle at Elet was indecisive, but a few weeks later, the Karait army was exterminated at Undor in the heart of the Karait land. Togrul was killed as he fled for refuge. The members of his family that survived submitted to Genghis, who annexed the whole country. The Naiman were the next nation to be subdued in 1204 at a great battle at Chakemaut, where the whole fate of Genghis's power was at stake. Wars during the next two years established Genghis as supreme 
scheme over all the tribes between the Tarim Basin, the River Amur and the Great Wall of China. In 1206, a Kurultai or assembly of all his subject tribes held on the banks of the River Onon confirmed his kingly title and he proclaimed that his people should be known collectively as the Mongols. The age of the Mongol Empire had arrived. And that ends this episode. Hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, I'd be really grateful if you wanted to recommend it to a friend or leave a review. Thank you so much. And in the next episode, we'll start the next series in this podcast called Mongols and Mamelukes. Thank you.